When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Did you ever hear of Kong? Why, yes. Some native superstition, isn't it? A god or a spirit or something. Well, anyway, neither beast nor man. Something monstrous, all-powerful, still living, still holding that island in a grip of deadly fear. Back in 1933, the all-powerful Kong was credited with saving RKO pictures from bankruptcy. Might the new Godzilla vs. Kong work the same magic for a spectacle-starved public and hurting theater chains? That's a question we won't be able to answer on this week's show, but we will try to settle the question of which movie monster reigns supreme, 1933's King Kong or 1954's Godzilla. That and more. Uh, Mothra would like a word, Adam. Ahead on film spotting. Welcome to film spotting. So, Josh, after a month of forcing our nostalgia fueled inner children to do battle with our more refined cinephile tastes, we have arrived at the championship round of film spotting madness. Best of the 80s. Sometimes it feels like we're never going to get there, Adam, but we made it. We are here. Yeah, I feel like it's actually gone kind of fast, and I'm a little sad that it's almost over. Well, this is why we're looking forward to the next round, to the 70s in our bonus content. We, we You and Sam just can't get enough of this, so we're going right. to jump right ahead. Last week, we got it down to four, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Raging Bull, The Shining, Do the Right Thing. This week... We're down to two. Podcast listeners will get more Madness Talk later in the show. Final four results and the championship matchup. As Josh alluded to a second ago, our patrons will also get a bonus episode with even more Madness Talk this week. Our radio listeners, well, you can always find the full version of the show at filmspotting.net or wherever you get your podcasts. We do love our irrational rankings here on Film Spotting Adam from our top five list to our deathmatch poll questions to Film Spotting Madness. So, yeah, what better way to jump on the Godzilla versus Kong bandwagon than pitting the two films that birth these monsters against each other? Yeah, I was going to say, in fairness, the versus is in the title, at least <laughs> exactly. of the new movie, right? Yep. They gave it to us. So, we're going to look at 33's King Kong. Hold it up against 54's Godzilla. Two classic monster movies enter this conversation. Only one survives. 
In This Corner, King Kong, a David O. Selznick production directed by Miriam C. Cooper and Ernest Shadesack with Robert Armstrong as bombastic movie maker Carl Denham. Denham basically charters a ship to seek out the legendary Kong on a remote island. He's hoping to film scenes there for an adventure movie that stars an actress he literally just found on the street, Fay Reyes and Darrow. Couple of bonus facts, research here Sam provided. King Kong did open on March 2, 1933 on two screens, Radio City Music Hall, which had 6,200 seats, and the RKO Roxy, right across the street from Radio City. That one had 3,700 seats. In its first four days, Kong sold out every seat, every show, 10 shows a day, and it did go on to become one of the highest grossing films of the 1930s. Now, in the other corner, Godzilla, or as the 1954 original Japanese version is titled, Gojira. Ishiro Honda is the director here. In the story, nuclear testing going on off the coast of Japan wakes up the title creature, who then goes on a rampage. An ensemble cast here, but it does include a familiar face. Mm -hmm. Takashi Shimura plays one of the investigating scientists, and Shimura, of course, a regular presence in the films of Akira Kurosawa, notably Rashomon, Ikiru, and Seven Samurai, which you and I revisited not too long ago, Adam. He was the sly leader of the samurai in that film. After opening in Japan in 54, Godzilla made it to the U.S. It was a heavily edited, Americanized cut known as Godzilla King of the Monsters, released in 56, and that one featured new scenes of Raymond Burr as an American reporter. You and I, we considered the 54 original Adam. Yes. Now, when I asked on Facebook and Twitter, which of these movies was the better overall film, I got an evenly split response. Good Hmm. arguments in favor of both. The dilemma was summed up well by C. Walter, goes by at WolfmanWalter13 on Twitter. Both are five out of five star classics. Stop Motion Kong is more lifelike than the first Godzilla suit slash puppets, but the story, themes, and emotional impact of Godzilla far outpaces King Kong. I couldn't tell you if the Max Steiner or Akira Ifukube score is superior. And Steiner, a familiar name also to us, Adam, came up in our discussion of the letter as part of our 40s noir marathon. I think that tweet touches on some of the helpful ways to compare Godzilla and King Kong. So that's what we're going to do here. We've broken up our conversation into five parts discussing five different elements. So story, performances, special effects, how they relate to the monsters themselves, the metaphorical weight or the message of each movie, and then sort of a catch-all miscellaneous category. We're going to debate which monster has the upper hand in each of those areas and then hopefully come away with a unanimous decision. I'm curious, Adam, starting here, are you pretty set in your opinion or are you wavering at all with uh, could this could this shift mid conversation is my question. You would really have to pull out some kind of magic trick of eloquence to convince me that one of these films isn't better than the other. Maybe not significantly better, though. Actually, I think as we get through it, I probably feel that way. I will note I'm a fan of both films, but I do think there is one that is superior. Okay. I went into this having a superior film in mind, but re-watching them and thinking about them, it's a little closer than it was originally. So you are kind of in the driver's seat here, Adam. Mm. You might help me decide finally. I think I know where I'm leaning, but it is close. It's really close. So I guess we start with story and take it away. What did you make of the story for each of these films? Well, I'll say first, there are, of course, challenges to comparing these two films. C. Walter said it very well. There are challenges to even this format 
in the five categories we came up with, because I think it's very difficult, obviously, to separate this one out, story and plot, when you consider how integral to any story its characters are, <laughs> its message is, and for these movies specifically, the monsters are. But I do think in terms of inventiveness and cinematic possibility and wonder, perhaps, I'm going to give the edge to King Kong. You have the director angle, his quest to make a movie unlike anyone has ever seen before, or at least his obsession with making a buck, no matter the risks. You've got the ingenue angle, from poor and destitute on the streets to sailing the high seas and starring in a picture. So you've got the adventure. You've got the romance between her and the first mate and his chivalry in terms of trying to rescue her from Kong. And of course, that romance, if you will, between Kong and the ingenue herself. Skull Island is incredible. The native ceremony that we see that's intended to appease Kong, that ritual, their kidnapping of the ingenue to sacrifice her. And then once you get to the other side of the wall, it's not just Kong that's so incredible. And it's not just a place that's untouched by man. It's like you've walked into Jurassic Park. You know, somehow as soon as you go through the gate, it's as if you've entered a time warp that zaps you from the 20th century back 150 million years. And if all of that isn't enough, one of those creatures, the ruler of that domain, Kong, is later transported to New York City, where he rumbles and rampages through the streets. I feel a little bit like Stefan here from Saturday Night Live, but adventure, romance, fantasy, horror, quasi-sci-fi, this movie has everything. <laughs> and Godzilla is layered, and it's profound, and we will get into probably all of that. But Kong's imaginativeness, I think, is inarguably one of the reasons it was such a hit and why it has endured. What about you? Well, and the other thing about all those story elements you just described, which are intriguing each in their own way, mm -hmm. this is a movie that moves. I mean, this thing yes. is lean. It's propulsive. Those things roll into each other. They don't just pile on top of each other in a jumble where it feels like a modern blockbuster where you're kind of just getting inundated and overwhelmed with how much story there is. It's very well-crafted in terms of moving us from one of those elements to the other. Now, Godzilla, not as streamlined, right? This The opening incident in Godzilla where this, this boat is mysteriously destroyed and they're trying to figure out what has happened, where are there any survivors? Godzilla spends a lot of time on that. And even as the narrative proper gets underway, there are some slow pockets here and there. I think the love triangle, different than the love triangle we see in mm -hmm. Kong among the first mate and Anne and Kong himself, it's way more mundane in Godzilla. And it serves some narrative purposes. I, I like that it does try to bring some humanity to this story, but I don't think it ever has the resonance of the relationships we see in Kong. Hmm. One story combination or one story point that is a nice connection, I should say, between the two movies. It was interesting to see the villager in Godzilla talk about how they used to sacrifice girls on a raft yeah. oh, to yeah. appease Godzilla. One of many like similarities between yeah, the two so films. That was interesting to watch um, while holding these two together. But yeah, I think for the reasons you described, Kong does have the edge in story. And there's you touched on this too. All of those elements are presented in such a mythical way. This is this is a story that you feel like you could have heard for 
eons before the movie was made and eons after. It's just, it has this sort of element where you feel like you're sitting around a campfire, hearing something, watching something unfold that is as old as time. Now, We'll get to these elements maybe a little bit later, but I think there is there's some sexism and racism in Kong's story. The depiction of those islanders, that relationship with the first mate mm-hmm. played by Bruce Cabot and Feyre's and Darrow. So we'll get to that maybe down when we move to metaphor. I don't know if those elements help Kong's story, but overall, we're in agreement. I'm giving this category to Kong. Okay, it's funny because we are in agreement, though the way we express it is a little bit different. I take your point, and I do see what you were saying, though I actually don't think of Kong as more streamlined. I do think of it as more propulsive, and I understand that point, the energy of it, and Godzilla is definitely more deliberate. But in terms of the plot itself, I think of Godzilla as way more streamlined, actually, just because it's the kind of plot you could describe in one or two sentences. Kong takes you a paragraph or two to really cover all the terrain that it covers. Yeah, I guess it's streamlined in how it gets us from point A to B to C to D, whereas Godzilla spends a lot of time examining certain plot points in between. It's not just that I wanted more mayhem in Godzilla, but Mm -hmm. there are kind of low parts in between some of the the really good non-Godzilla parts of that movie as well, where the story sags just a bit. Okay, so let's see if we continue to agree as we get then to characters slash performances. Is there a clear winner here for you, Josh? No, this was a really tough one. And let's start, let's go back to Shimura, Takashi Shimura. He is so invaluable to Godzilla in terms of providing that that human element that we were talking about. He adds gravity, which I think we know he does to every film mm-hmm. that I've seen him in. He also has, though, that small sideways smile that it just kind of keeps you curious about what his character might be thinking. And I, I I can see that smile in Seven Samurai too. He just pulls it out here and there. And what it always does for me is make you wonder, okay, what's going on up there? What, what is he up to or what is he processing or what is he is he going to bring back later in this story that we can see him thinking about now? He's just such a fascinating character to or actor to watch on screen. And I think he, he just elevates the performance element to Godzilla. I also did like... Akihiko Hirata as Dr. Sirizawa. So this Mm -hmm. is kind of the mad scientist character in Godzilla. He's got an eye patch. He has this lab where he's working on the oxygen destroyer in secret. I love the scenes in the lab, um, how they're shot very almost like universal monster movie style. And Sirizawa taps into as a character the mournful element I think we'll definitely get to and spend more time on that is in Godzilla. It's a very subdued performance. His concerns he expresses about even though this invention might save them now from Godzilla, he's clearly worried about what others will do with it if it gets into the wrong hands. And so there's a connection here with the metaphorical nuclear element in Godzilla. And so I think this is a really strong performance. I also like the touch, which I caught this time. There's a reference that he lost his eye in the war. And so it's just, you know, it shows you how careful the filmmakers are being in Godzilla to recognize what their movie is really about, not just give this guy an eye patch because it looks cool or it makes him look like a mad scientist. You know, they, they connect it with the underlying concerns going on in the film. So all that to say, the Godzilla performances, I think, are stronger than they're probably given credit for. But is anyone in Godzilla as fun as Armstrong playing Denim, (laughs) the movie mogul? I mean, he is 
how about when he they're on the island and they have the first confrontation with the islanders and they all decide let's back away let let's you know go back to the ship and he kind of does that he tips his hat back as he turns kind of like a little i don't know it's not quite like a middle finger to the villagers but it's it's a little bit like <laughs> oh, i'm yeah. not too worried about you <laughs> you know yeah. and there's all these little flourishes in his performance he and he's a maniac <laughs> he's an absolute maniac when he shoots that dinosaur in the head once they get behind the gate um and then the final line he gets how nonplussed he is after all this has happened he's standing over kong's body and he's just kind of shrugging his shoulders. It's like, well, I'll go on to my next project. So I really did enjoy Denim and um, we'll talk about Fay Ray as well, but let me hear what you thought of Denim at least. Well, here's where we're finally going to diverge a little bit on these films. And I will go back to Sarazawa just for a second. The eye patch is really interesting too. And maybe it's because I was trying to think of these movies in terms of metaphor, but you could have had him suffering from really any malady or injury from the war to make that same point. I wonder if we're supposed to read into it something about the fact that it's his vision that's blurred, even though he is someone who seems to see the full picture, but Mm. in terms of his central dilemma and only seeing, if you will, certain sides of it or trying to weigh both sides, maybe it's not insignificant that they gave him an eye patch. I think that one of these films definitely has performances, (laughs) One of the ones you spoke of, but only one really has performances and characters. I just don't think there's enough dimension and substance to Denim or to Anne or to Driscoll. I think the potential is there. I'm just not convinced that Kong goes deep enough. And maybe its leading men couldn't go there, even if the movie wanted to. I think that Cabot and, yeah, even Armstrong to an extent, I think are are serviceable. I mean, I I get your little flourishes. I was amused by them too, but there's something about that hammy reading of the famous last line that actually drives me crazy. Oh, no. It wasn't the airplanes. It was beauty killed the beast. Beauty killed the beast. I just hate it. Well, maybe it's because it's the third or fourth time he said it. Yeah. <laughs> I think in the yeah. movie. <laughs> he's finding yet another way to, to say it, and he really relishes every breath of it. But I don't think Fay Ray's talent can be questioned. You can only question the extent to which the movie takes advantage of it. And mm. I don't want to get too Bechtel testy here, but she doesn't have many lines to begin with. She has to swoon silently over her Cabot's lunkhead on the ship. And then once Kong shows up and she becomes an object for his desire, that's what she becomes for the movie as well. She screams a lot. I'm not sure she says more than about five words for a good chunk of the running time of this movie, though. I feel like that's actually one of the problems, and I haven't revisited the movie or my notes, but I feel like it's one of the problems that maybe Peter Jackson's remake actually solved, giving Naomi Watts's and significantly more agency, because without having a stronger sense of her experience and processing that with her and that combination of total fear and maybe even strange security that Kong's obsession must give her, the movie suffers. I just don't think the filmmakers are really maybe progressive enough 
maybe just not daring enough to truly let us connect with her. But then you contrast that, Josh, with how we identify with Emiko and her conflict to reveal what she knows about Sarazawa's creation. Sarazawa's conflict, we've already touched on it. This man of rationality and reason and science, knowing he's made a weapon of mass destruction, albeit one that could save lives and cities if turned against Godzilla, and then that ultimate sacrifice that he has to make. And you mentioned Shimura, this thoughtful academic who sees the destruction and chaos, but who wants Godzilla to live, who feels compassion, among other things, for the creature. And you actually touched on this. There are some similarities between these characters. If you go back to Denim, right? Both Denim and Shimura's character, Dr. Yamani, they both recognize the unique inherent value of their monsters for the former that value though is all about how he can exploit him for money for the latter it's of course more humanistic than capitalistic it's about studying him and learning how he has managed to survive so long and i think actually it's a bit ironic in the translation in godzilla yamani refers to the creature as priceless. But Denim is also like Sarazawa. He is a sort of mad scientist. He's pushing moral and ethical boundaries for his own experiment. Only Sarazawa, I think more than Denim, actually fully comprehends the consequences of his experiment. So I'm just drawn more to Yamani and more to Sarazawa than I am Denim and Armstrong's performance. And maybe it's not even, if I'm being totally honest, not because I'm such a humanist myself. If Denim was maybe just as reckless but had been driven just a little bit more by art than commerce, I might feel differently. <laughs> I'm going ashore with you, aren't I? You bet. I don't think she ought to go till we find out what's going on. Uh, now, wait a minute. Who's running this show? I found out from experience always to keep my cast and my cameras right with me. Never can tell when you want them. Yeah, but you're crazy to risk Now, Jack, run along and deal out the rifles and ammunition and get me a couple of huskies to carry my stuff. And Jack... Don't forget the costume box. If we're lucky enough, we may get a swell shot right away. Yeah, he thinks he's driven by art. Uh, this this is the, even though he's, he's very honest about being driven by commerce too, he's yes. trying to combine them, right? So this is the hard thing about separating performance from character because you're right. I like the characters of like Emiko played by Momoko Koshi. I like Sirizawa and I definitely like Shimura's scientist better <laughs> than anyone, anyone in King Kong, any of the characters in King Kong. And I do think Shimura gives maybe the best performance out of everything. But man, I, I just enjoyed I, I enjoyed Armstrong a lot more than you, I think. And mm-hmm. I think Fay Ray is really good in what is a very annoying character because she is she's so pliable, as you mm-hmm. described, especially when she is with Driscoll, Bruce Cabot's first mate. It's it's maddening in this day and age to watch her so willingly give in to the movie's limitations. You know, that's yeah. what's frustrating about it. But I think she's got the great scream, obviously. But I also think that she sells those scenes with Kong, or at least, you know, with the mechanical hand that, that she's in, as well as your... This movie is going to have to, if it's going to be sort of iconic and last and not be laughable, she's going to have to sell those scenes in some way and, mm-hmm. and layer them in ways that have more than just the screaming and the fear. And I think she does manage to pull that off. Now, I'm siding again here with Kong in this category, but I'm telling you, Bruce Cabot's Driscoll, the first mate, nearly put me off because mm-hmm. that character is, to be fair to Cabot, he's probably doing exactly what the script is asking him to right. do. You that girl Denham picked up last night, aren't you? Yes. I think this is awfully exciting. I've never been on a ship before. 
Well, I've never been on one with a woman before. I guess you don't think much of women on ships, do you? No, they're a nuisance. Well, I'll try not to be. You've been on the way already. Bring that ladder aboard! Man, is he unlikable. Just the way he even talks to Anne. And as this, he's not even like fun to watch as the dashing heroic figure once he's trying to rescue her from the creatures beyond the gate. So he was kind of maddening to me, but I think on the strength of Armstrong and Fay Ray, I'm going to stick with Kong in this category too. Yeah, I'm not really going to defend Driscoll here. I'll just say that maybe I disliked him a little bit less than you only because I felt like Maybe Cabot knew and the movie knew that he was protesting a little bit too much in his seeming disdain for Anne and for all women in for general. Women it in seemed general. like it was it was just setting him up to obviously come around and maybe it was really about him protecting her all mm-hmm. along is why he was kind of talking to her that way. But a difficult performance, a difficult character for sure. All right, so let's move on. This might be the make or break category for our discussion, Adam. Mm -hmm. The special effects, the monsters themselves, how they're envisioned. And starting with Kong here, we have to mention effects pioneer Willis O'Brien, also worked on The Lost World, Mighty Joe Young. I had, even though I've seen this movie a number of times, I had forgotten how many close-ups of Kong there were where it's, I'm not sure if it's a puppet head, like this giant puppet head or some sort of animatronics, early animatronics. Uh, But those struck me because the eyes somehow were almost friendly when we, when we get that close look at Kong, except I'll make this in my notes, Josh, I'll make the distinction when the few fantastic close-ups where he's munching on a person, then they don't look quite so friendly. But did you notice that too? (laughs) I did. I did. Actually, it's one of the things I'm kind of using against Kong in this category because every time they cut to Kong in close-up, he looks downright genial. It's like, he just wants to be friends with everyone. He doesn't understand why everybody's (laughs) so upset and running around. But isn't that, I think that's part of the point. I think they're like, there is a movement towards sympathy for him there rather than being this giant, fearsome, distant creature. Like we're, we're getting in close. (laughs) Even when he's gnawing on someone, Josh? Well, you know, like I said, then, then the eyes, they shade a little bit, take a little different shade. But, um, I think for me, you know, the question here is why does this movie, and I assume you agree, hold up with these stop motion, herky jerky effects that nothing could look quote unquote faker than what we get here yet it's somehow magical and i think it has something to do with uh, the background work whether they're matte paintings or the other landscape imagery that the stop motion work is being done in it's creating this entire world that envelops us that's very rich and dense and mythical but it's also the details in the stop motion animation that evoke emotion they evoke personality. I think about the punch Kong throws at the T-Rex, which is just like, it's not animalistic at all, but it it makes him suddenly feel like, oh, he's got a personality too. Like he's going to throw, he's going to take a swing at this thing. And you see a lot of this during the New York City rampage. I love the touch with how he takes his steel belt off and just whips it to the ground. So it's not just that he's escaping, but he's pissed about being forced to wear this thing. He gives the train car that he derails a few extra punches for good measure. It's just this rage that we're seeing. And so I think it's, you know, if it works, it's not because it's realistic, but it's because it creates this coherent and tantalizing fantasy world that we can get lost in. Audiences did in 33, and Mm -hmm. I still get lost in it today. Yeah. You said it very well. The stop motion, there's 
trick photography, there's miniature models, there's, of course, lots of rear projection, and it does hold up the overall production design and the art direction as well. There is, you mentioned it, there's nothing about Skull Island or the Empire State Building Climax that feels flimsy, even still all these years later. And that's why it's very easy to give the nod to Kong here, because in terms of innovation and being way, way, way ahead of its time, it has to be praised. And there's other elements, too. You mentioned the Steiner score. It was groundbreaking in terms of how the music was used here, how sound effects were used. The overall sound design of the RKO sound department was first of its kind in many ways. So that is definitely a key reason why King Kong is such a timeless classic. And I'm with you in terms of Kong probably exhibiting more personality than Godzilla does. Besides his obvious affections for Anne, which is something that Godzilla just wouldn't be capable of. There's there's not much romance there, mm, I think, no, no. with Godzilla. I do like not only the moments you touched on, but I like how he roars on the cliff when he's taken down yet another combatant, yeah. right? I mean... We have a lot more sympathy for Godzilla. I think overall we will get into that here in a moment, but it's not as if he's got an easy life. Every five steps, there's some other gigantic creature who's trying to take him down. (laughs) He constantly has to assert his dominance. And there's that moment where he just kind of roars for his own sake and glory. And maybe, maybe everyone else in the jungle hears him and they know that he reigns supreme. And that battle with the T-Rex, I like how after he's taken it out and it's dead laying on the ground, he still picks up its jaw and kind of moves it up and down just a little bit, like he's maybe having a little bit of fun with the with the carcass there but i do think that godzilla's set pieces the ones at least involving people in relation to the monster and that scaling are more seamless and yes it's made 20 years later so i get it but Mm -hmm. there are times with kong where you feel at least during those jungle sequences on skull island you feel a little bit like you're on a conveyor belt and you're just an observer as Kong battles these different creatures. You definitely do not feel that way in those sequences in Tokyo and when Godzilla's attacking. And again, the kind of proximity of the characters to the monster is something I didn't quite feel as much with Kong. As I really try to break it down, though, I think this is where I'm incapable of considering the monsters themselves distinct from their context. And Maybe there's still enough of a dinosaur nerd in me from my kid days, Josh, where just the large reptile that shoots radiation from its mouth is more fun than a large ape. And even though I said it's not hard to empathize with Kong, who would have been just fine on Skull Island if nobody had ever bothered him, Godzilla is truly a tragic monster who is essentially man-made, forged by hydrogen bomb testing. It's a physical embodiment of man's destructive impulses, forcing man to confront those destructive impulses. And when Kong dies, I'm a little conflicted, but I'm mostly awed. And when Godzilla dies, I'm crushed. Hmm. So I give the edge, at least in terms of monster, to Godzilla. Okay. Fascinating. And and that's that's creeping into like metaphorical territory it too. It's, so it's the transition, a nice segue I provided for myself. Yes. Yeah. So I'm trying to parse that out here and, and stick a little bit more for myself to to the effects and how they envision the creatures. I want to go back to your point about the roar because what I love about that, it's such a great moment. And it also is what I think makes 
his demise at the top of the Empire State Building so tragic is because this is he's at another pinnacle here. Yeah. And there's a moment where he kind of I think you feel like he thinks he's won. And then clearly he's been mortally wounded. And that fall he takes is just beautifully drawn out so that it is tragic. And it's kind of the polar opposite of the scene you were describing. So that's just another effects moment that I think is beautiful with Kong. I do want to defend some of the work in Godzilla because I think a lot of feedback I saw, people were actually more disrespectful of the Godzilla effect, saying, you Hmm. know, guy in a suit and kind of shoddy and that. And I think there are some shots that don't work quite as well. But right away, the opening shot of this movie, this isn't even really special effects, but it relates to the creature of the water bubbling behind a boat. Mm -hmm. I just loved, you know, since this is my 10th time seeing the film or whatever, how it resembles Godzilla's tail, the water moving, bubbling along. And then I do think Godzilla, when Godzilla's standing in the water, kind of from a distance and splashing Mm -hmm. around, this has to do with the the scale and the immensity that you're talking about, Adam, is awe-inspiring. I think that's when it comes across the best. Uh, The underwater cinematography... Not, you know, as strong as Creature from the Black Lagoon. So that finale, I think, suffers a little bit from that. And although I do like the detail that we see Godzilla bones at the end, that maybe Mm -hmm. adds to sort of this element, the tragic element that you're talking about. And you mentioned the sound design. You're so right. The way Godzilla... Um, well, I think you mentioned it in reference to King Kong, but the sound design here as well is um, they incorporate air raid sirens. There's very little music during the attacks. And I want to highlight, and this again moves us towards metaphor, Godzilla's scream, this high-pitched mm. echoing yeah. screech. Which it's a whale. It is a whale. And this this connects us to the sadness of the story of Godzilla. It's a lament, it's a wail, it's a cry that uh, I think works really well for what the rest of the movie is doing. So, all right, so I'm going to go with, I'm still, despite all that, I'm going to go with Kong in this category too. I'm trying to keep score here. You're 3-0. Three, 3-0 three zero. Three zero Kong and you're- yeah. It's a blowout. You're two one Godzilla. I am indeed. Wow. Okay. It's gonna it's gonna come down to the wire. We'll see what happens when our discussion continues after the break. Plus, we're gonna reveal the two films squaring off in the Film Spotting Madness Championship. Stay with us. Josh, Mickey, 
Burgess Meredith. How can you not love that? <laughs> Come on. I, let's just say Burgess Meredith is not, not really one of my issues with Rocky. Okay. Next week on the show, we're going to follow up <laughs> Godzilla v. Kong with Rocky is good versus Rocky is bad. Rocky is the 1977 Best Picture winner, and it's the fourth film in our seven from 76 Best Year Ever series. We will also get back into our 40s noir marathon with 1945's Detour directed by Edgar Ulmer. Not just the letter, Josh, featuring Max Steiner, but if I remember correctly, at least a couple Steiners in our Betty Davis marathon as well. That would make sense. That was yeah. prior to that. Now, Adam, can you allow me the possibility I might come around on Rocky? Are you are you just not seeing any chance of that happening? Oh, I always have a little bit of hope. Okay, good. I mean, it has been a while. It has been a while since I've seen it. I've softened <laughs> yeah. in my old age. Okay. Maybe I'll love it. The Italian Stallion going into this match against you, an underdog, just like Apollo Creed. But that go. doesn't mean it can't be at least a draw. Also next week, I think we're going to announce the winner of Film Spotting Madness Best of the 80s, though pretty sure on the film spotting madness webpage it says april 12th we do sometimes have two weeks before we announce that final winner but these results josh i don't know how close they're going to be maybe we should just go ahead and announce them next week stay tuned to find out where we land there this week over on our sister podcast the next picture show it's part one of their tina turner pairing the new tina doc on hbo which i am eager to see with 1993's What's Love Got to Do With It, a movie we both admitted last week we hadn't seen, this seems like as good of an excuse as any to finally catch up with it, not just the fact that Tina is out on HBO, but because our friends at The Next Picture Show are talking about them. I do hope to see both soon. Next Picture Show hosts are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes of The Next Picture Show post every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts, and you can find more information at nextpictureshow.net. Adam, another quick plug I want to put in here for Ebert Interruptus. I'm hosting again this year after COVID derailed last year's event. We're going to do a virtual edition for the Conference on World Affairs. This is the tradition Ebert started and did for many, many years where he took one film over the course of a week, analyzed it frame by frame. And also took comments and questions from those in the theater as the movie went on. So we're going to do that virtually. We're going to watch my favorite film of last year, your favorite film of last year, Adam, Steve McQueen's Lover's Rock. Just a two-day event, April 10, April 11. We'll be doing it via Amazon Watch Party so you can join and we'll pause the film whenever people have questions or comments and then start it right up again in sync. It should be fun. Because we're doing Amazon Watch Party, we're limited on how many people can participate and RSVPs are now open. So we'll put a link in the show notes if this is something that sounds interesting and you want to be a part of it. Again, April 10 and April 11. Love to see some film spotting listeners participate. I know this is a universal lament, but if there was ever a movie that seems so perfect to watch with a packed house, it's Lover's yeah, Rock. I know. And yet you got to do it virtually, don't you? Yeah, I know. And you're right. Like every movie feels that way right now. But this one, I, I also thought this is either the perfect movie to stop and examine, like editing, cinematography, all that stuff. Or it's the sort of movie where it's such a joyous experience. You don't want to stop at all. You just want mm -hmm. to let it roll. So we've been telling people, especially obviously if you haven't seen it yet, watch Lover's Rock in advance so you get that full experience then come hang out with us and we'll break it down. 
One way that you can support Film Spotting is to join the Film Spotting family over on Patreon for $5 a month or more. If you'd like to contribute more, you get ad-free episodes, early show downloads, a merch discount, you get monthly bonus episodes, and Yes, we are going to hopefully treat our patrons this week, Josh. We're going to give them, along with our producer, Sam, a preview of Film Spotting Madness, Best of the 70s. And jokes aside, many of our listeners actually do really care about these lists and getting them early because we did realize a few years ago after listening to our audience that it was nice to have at least the short list of films we were considering we may not have had the final 64 determined yet, but if we had a hundred or more that were in contention, let's put them out there and give people almost a year to actually watch these movies rather than waiting till January or February and everybody's cramming to fill in any blind spots. So for our family members over on Patreon, they're going to get that early glimpse into next year's list. We figured why not just keep it going. We're doing best of the 80s now. Let's go ahead and do best of the 70s. They're also going to hear a little bit about the behind the scenes of making these lists and they're going to get something special josh which is you forced to participate in that (laughs) process something you (laughs) gave up doing many years ago you know but this is how i like to do it we'll we'll have a contained time and space Uh uh-huh where we're going to talk about this and then when it continues on forever on slack that that's where i can that's where i can step out one of the other topics which should be good though i'm i'm eager to hear this we're going to talk about as part of this bonus show is the blind spots the three of us have right you talked about listeners filling in we have them ourselves so as we're looking at these 70s films what should be representative of the decade there's a bunch on there that i know i i have just never seen that i'm going to need this next year to get to yeah you're right and as we were 80s children born in the 70s but 80s kids not a surprise that we had seen 99 percent Right. Or so of the movies that were ultimately in the running for Film Spotting Madness Best of the 80s. But next year, the 70s, there are a bunch more. So, yes, we have homework to do as well. Our patrons, again, will get to hear that episode, get to hear us share those blind spots and talk through the movies that we think should probably be the top contenders in next year's bracket. You can get that by going to patreon.com slash film spotting and becoming a member. Now, when you become a member, you also get access to some of our exclusive special events. By the time people hear this, April's trivia spotting taking place on Friday, April 16th will probably be sold out. It's called I Know What You Did Last Trivia Spotting. It's our ninth (laughs) installment. And yes, we're going to do an all 90s edition to follow our all 80s edition in March. Great name that our producer Sam came up with. I'm still securing guest captains. We're going to have at least one new face, maybe two. And I think Mariah Gates from Movie Phone is going to come back. She's going to go for the trifecta, see if she can win three times in a row, Josh. Yeah, she's she's just been killing it. And I am going to, uh, I think I'm going to bribe Thomas to give me a team of all 90s kids. Me and the 90s there kids. There you go. That's what I want. Now, I don't know how we overlooked this last week. Maybe it's because we didn't want to embarrass ourselves, but I'm going to go ahead and do that. If you participate in our monthly trivia events by becoming a family member first, you will get to witness invariably one of us or both of us hosts just making an abject fool of themselves. Oh, 
And that's what this has become. <laughs> Essentially, this has become the point, which I knew the yeah. first time this idea yeah. was floated. I knew it was going to head this direction. I think we both held up pretty well. But yeah, last time was abject failure for both of us. <laughs> so the game was, this was a lightning round, and this is where hubris got me. Thomas Todd, our quiz master, was doing a game where he was naming famous 80s characters. You had to say the actor who played that famous character. I was really confident. I just really knew I could do well in this round. And I did pretty well through maybe the first two or three. And then it got to me and Josh, he gave me Elwood blues. So we're a Chicago based show. Mm -hmm. One question. Neither of us should ever get wrong is something about the blues brothers. Even though I'm going to admit (laughs) the blues brothers is a movie I really like, but not a movie I've spent significant time with. And everyone who heard my answer, obviously, then quickly knew that to be true. He says Elwood Blues. I know it's Dan Aykroyd, or I know it's John Belushi. Yes, those, I'm are, trying, those are your choices, Adam. I'm trying. Thank you. I'm trying to guess which one Thomas might go with. But no, I do not know for sure which one is Joliet Jake. I could use my lifeline. You only get one, though. Mm. I could go to my teammates they could help me out i know they'd have the right answer but i'm like it's a 50 50 chance and i may need that lifeline later and i'm winning this round damn it and so i said john belushi (laughs) and of course elwood blues was dan Aykroyd. now do you want to confess to your sin in the last trivia well mine was a sin upon a sin um for the second time in a lightning round (laughs) somehow a question involved a nightmare on elm street my favorite horror film of all time, which I've reviewed glowingly on the show. We've talked about, I could not pull the name of the actor who played Freddy Krueger. Can you do it right now? Yeah. Well, I will, I will. (laughs) It's probably going to be the last thing I yell on my deathbed at this point, Robert Englund. And then I'm gone. I mean, this, this is how traumatic these trivia spotting experiences are. So everyone there, most people likely know about my love for the movie. You're, you're in the spotlight obvious easy question and it's just one of those i've described it before if you don't get it out maybe this is what happened to you if you don't get it out of your mouth quick enough if you allow Mm -hmm. that half second of doubt to creep in it's gone the name just disappears and yeah like a two trivia spottings ago or more there was another i forget what it was nightmare on elm street question i blew as well so you know it's exposing us to be feeble-minded frauds and i hope people are enjoying that yeah They seem to be. For the record, I did know every single other answer, including Robert England. So I wasn't wrong in my smugness, and yet I did make the wrong choice. And the only thing that gave me any kind of solace was I think it was that same round. You then went out with a Nightmare on Elm Street question. It just did not be better. So, yes, we have fun with trivia spotting. And if you become a patron... You can sign up for that $5 a month membership, or you can get a 10% discount if you pay annually and you get more than one month free. Patreon.com slash film spotting. This is blasphemy. This is madness. This is absolute madness. This is is absolute madness, Ambassador. Why should you build such a thing? Madness. This is Sparta! It brings a tear to my eye hearing that clip, Josh, knowing that we are almost to the end of Film Spotting Madness. It can't be. It cannot be. Short for me and Sam, the longest month of the Film Spotting calendar for you. (laughs) 
it is time to announce the results of the final four matchups and the two films that will battle for best of the 80s supremacy. This is our seventh annual bracket style tournament, 64 films, only one survives. And yes, we are crowning the best film of the 1980s. The championship is currently live at filmspotting.net slash madness. The voting closes on Monday the 5th. So next week's show is when you will hear the best of the 80s champion crown. Josh, let's see how the final four matchups played out. We start with Raging Bull versus The Shining. Got a comment from Joe T here. Every one of the most popular epic anti-hero narratives of the last 20 years owes something to Raging Bull and Scorsese. From Tony Soprano to Walter White to Don Draper, the question of the soul of the toxic masculine hero comes from Raging Bull. Maybe it's not so obvious in 2021 with the current oversaturation of the anti-hero, but it's the compassion Scorsese shows for the hopeless, selfish, narcissistic, cruel Jake LaMotta who deserves no kindness, no love, and yet is a human being like all of us and is given the opportunity to have his story told on the level of an opera that makes it one of the greatest works of cinema ever made. Even the worst of us can strive for redemption. Hmm. Well said, Joe, but here's Elizabeth Smith who says, Raging Bull has biopic syndrome. It covers way too much time and feels unfocused. While being stuck in one emotional gear throughout, I don't hate it, but I also don't get it. The Shining is focused, precise, strange, beautiful, fun, funny, scary, gripping. I feel like I'm writing my wedding vows for when I marry it, <laughs> which I will as soon as it wins madness. Wow. And Elizabeth, it might have a chance because Josh, The Shining, the number four seed, takes down the number one seed, Raging Bull, 64% to 36%. Are you surprised? I'm shocked. I'm double shocked. I would, yeah. I don't think I did predict this. And certainly if someone had told me that Raging Bull was going down to The Shining, I would say that it was a very, very close race. Not this. This is, um, yeah, this isn't kind of incredible to me. I had no idea The Shining had this sort of support. Well, I maybe could have known and maybe I should have paid attention more to this when I was filling out my bracket. We'll get to that here in a moment. Over at Letterboxd, and this has steered myself and Sam wrong before, so I try not to put too much stock in it. But if you look at Letterboxd and you go to the Raging Bull page, it tells you how many people have seen it, mm-hmm. how many likes it has. So Raging Bull has, I think I saw something like 195,000 views. And it is in the top 200 of all time on Letterboxd. It is number like 167. But The Shining has 795,000 views, Josh, yeah. and is number 67 on that list. So do you think it could be, as we were talking earlier about 90s kids, actually 189,000 for Raging Bull? That's a severe discrepancy. We were talking about 90s kids and those who maybe listen to the show. Is it possible that more people listening and voting simply have seen The Shining than Raging Bull? Yeah, I think that's probably exactly what this is revealing. And now, you know, I feel foolish too, not putting The Shining further in my bracket, because just think about in general film conversation, how much does The Shining come up compared to Raging Bull? Right. I mean, you you might say if someone was doing a top 1000 films in cinema, Raging Bull might likely on critics list rank higher, but in common conversation and casual conversation with film fans, you're probably going to hear about The Shining more. And so maybe that's indicated here. Okay. The Shining advances and it will face the winner of this matchup, Raiders of the Lost Ark versus 
do the right thing. Tom says, I voted Raiders. I know do the right thing is more important and more artful. And I think it's an excellent film, but at the end of the day, as much as I love and appreciate capital C cinema, I must admit I'm a simple minded genre lover at heart. And I just like Raiders more. Plus it's fun to imagine Michael Phillips incredulity should Raiders win. Oh, yes, we, we always need to factor in the anti-Phillips vote when Raiders fight vote when Raiders is involved. We also heard from John DeCesaro in Wichita. I'm not even sure if Raiders is the best Indiana Jones movie, but I'm certain that Do the Right Thing is one of the best movies of all time. This shouldn't even be close. Okay, here's Sarab Kakani who says this one was brutal, but a recent rewatch of the 4K restoration of Do the Right Thing in a theater before the pandemic hit was galvanizing. The audience was overwhelmed by its power. Raiders will always be a foundational text for me, have a place in my heart, and is one of the best films ever made. But Do the Right Thing is the best, most important film of the 80s. One more note here from Chris Massa Minute Massa. Honestly, I don't know if Do the Right Thing is the best film of the 80s. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But of all the great films in this competition, Do the Right Thing may just be the one that has the most to say to us now, today, in 2021. Its message hasn't dimmed or become obsolete. In fact, far from it. If anything, the past few months and years have made its message even more relevant, even more necessary. We are still crying for justice for Radio Rahim, and many are still coming to terms with the anger and sadness that could possess someone like Mookie to pick up a garbage can. We need this movie. Apparently, a majority of listeners feel the way Chris does. It was close, Josh, but the movie I thought would win it all, would be crowned the best film of the 80s, Raiders of the Lost Ark, is out in the final four to Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing, 51% to 49%. That is about as close as it gets. And I do wonder if Chris's comment... If there's a recency influence there in just how relevant Do the Right Thing clearly has become, even since, I mean, think about it, since we started talking about mm-hmm. Film Spotting Madness Best of the 80s a year ago, you know, Do the Right Thing has come up in the cultural conversation over the events of last summer repeatedly. And I wonder if that gave it this final boost to push back Raiders, because this is a surprise to me as well. You know, I was thinking about this matchup when I was thinking about our Godzilla v. Kong matchup. And no, it's not a perfect analogy, but doesn't Kong feel a bit like Raiders of the Lost Ark? And doesn't Godzilla feel a little bit more like Do the Right Thing? And that speaks to the folly of pitting these films against each other. Yeah, no, I I like that because Kong is the rollicking ride in comparison. Even though they're both ostensibly in the same genre, Kong is very much more of a Raiders-like roller coaster ride yeah. experience. Yeah, and Godzilla, like Do the Right Thing, is more didactic and is certainly trying to impart a message. That means the championship match is the number three seed Do the Right Thing against the number four seed The Shining. And this one's pretty easy for me. As much as I love The Shining, and I do, a movie that has been given the sacred cow treatment here on Film Spotting. I don't think Do the Right Thing has, but am I losing my mind, Josh, and well, forgetting it's it? Well, in, it's in the Pantheon. So it is, but that yeah, hasn't I don't stopped think us. We've, that's true. Um, but no, as far as I know, we haven't revisited it in detail. We probably need to remedy that at some point, especially after it possibly wins Film Spotting Madness Best of the 80s. It definitely has a chance going up against Kubrick. Are you... Well, I know you're voting for Do the Right Thing because it's in your top 10 of all time. 
Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it makes The Shining, which is a film I like and admire very much, but I would not have had it gone this far in my personal choices. So it makes this easier for me to vote for Do the Right Thing. I'll be exhilarated. I'll be super proud of Film Spotting Nation if we do go with Do the Right Thing here. I just think it's it's clearly the correct vote. So will Michael Phillips. <laughs> he'll be just He'll just be so happy. He's already happy. I mean, did not take it. Our leader after the elite eight round of our bracket challenge, 812 film spotting listeners participated in this bracket challenge was Brett Fisher in Portland, Oregon. He sent us a nice note explaining the name of his bracket, the Jim Bayheimlich maneuver, (laughs) as well as some other comments. Josh. I'm going to relish this moment in the sun as the number one bracket in film spotting madness, so I thought I'd take a moment to fill in the background on my bracket name, as it encompasses no less than the arc of my existence. As a kid who came of age in the 80s, I graduated from watching cartoons on Saturday morning to college basketball. I was a West Coast kid who loved Big East basketball, so I loved following Syracuse and Georgetown back when they dominated television. I've watched Coach Jim Beheim for The Orange my entire life, and for some reason, I just love the guy. I started filling out March Madness brackets in middle school and selected the games that helped my gym teacher win the teacher's pool jackpot. My reward? A lunch from Burger King, which was more than a kid could hope for. I won a couple more brackets throughout the decades and always chose a Syracuse-themed name. Then when I became a father, my keen sense for puns really kicked into high gear and I landed on the Jim Beheimlich maneuver, using that before and after method sometimes used as the clue in the Wheel of Fortune. Cut to today, when I love to rank practically everything in my life to reach the pinnacle of that ever-elusive thing, quality. What is the best of anything? Let's talk about it. Some people find the ranking and ordering of films a fruitless exercise, but I couldn't disagree more. I can't get enough. This is why I have created a top 10 film list of every year going back to the 90s. Furthermore, in taking it to the next level of nerddom, after I rank my top 10 list, I compare it to every critic who places their list on Metacritic. And by means of a rudimentary scoring system... I can figure which critic is most similar to me and my taste in film for that particular year. My 2019 made me most similar to none other than Film Spotting's own Adam Kempinar, plus The Guardian and Screen Anarchy. In 2020, I compared most favorably with Steve Procopi. Anyway, all this to say that I love films, talking about them, ranking them, and listening to people talking about ranking them. Much thanks to the Film Spotting crew for providing me with some of the things I love most in life. Cheers, and here's to a hopeful, strong finish with the final four of the madness. Well, after all of that, Brett, your luck, like Jim Beheim's in the Syracuse Orange, it ran out here in the final four of Film Spotting Madness. Brett had Raiders and Raging Bull making the finals. I know how you feel, Brett. He dropped to 69th place. That means we have a new overall leader. It's listener and Patreon family member. Andy Hampton, he did successfully pick the final four and the two finalists. He has do the right thing, Josh, winning it all. I think it's looking good for Andy. I think it is as well. For our internal bracket contest, this is just me, you, producer Sam, and Madness Godfather Mike Merrigan. Now, Josh, on a recent show, you were very upset about the fact that I stated you'd only made it as high as fourth in our prediction contest out of all the 812. And then I even think I said to you behind the scenes, no, really, I checked Sam's notes again. It was fourth. Well, then Sam shot me a note today. Turns out he had it wrong. I had it wrong. You were in second place at one point in this tournament. Wow. Thank you. I don't think I will ever rise higher 
in my entire film spotty madness career. So I'm glad you yeah. corrected that. I will cling to it. I will hang well, on to that. What that tells myself and Sam is that you cared so much. You really are more into madness than you like to pretend. Yes. Yeah. I was very, very angry about that, Adam. I couldn't <laughs> sleep. It was just going over and over in my head. Yeah. Well, you're not in second anymore, Josh, or fourth. And you did oh, drop boy. to second in our little contest. I moved into first and third overall in the prediction contest, but that is over as well because I picked Raiders and Raging Bull to go to the finals. I've now dropped to 98th place. That is ahead of you, Josh, though, in 146th place. Ouch. Yeah. Sam has moved back into first because among the four of us, he has do the right thing, winning it all. He is in 60th place overall. And obviously, if do the right thing takes it, he could jump up even more. All this means, though, is that Mike Merrigan, Mm. who really did lose this thing weeks ago and kind of took the suspense out of it, he's going to be the (laughs) one who has to watch the Adam Sandler movie as penance. He is currently in 615th place. That does put him ahead of almost 200 listeners. Congratulations, Mike. I, I like how you try to make him feel better there. <laughs> there are 200 people doing worse than you, That's Mike. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I again, don't know if voting, that's going to heal the wound, Adam, of having to watch a Sandler film, but nice try. No. Again, voting in the championship round of Film Spotting Madness Best of the 80s is live. Vote and leave comments at filmspotting.net slash madness or just go right to the homepage of filmspotting.net. Voting closes Monday, April 5th at 11 a.m. Central Time. We will announce the winner next week on the show. Again, filmspotting.net slash madness. Hi, Adam and Josh. Garrett here from North Hollywood, California. I'm so thrilled that you're discussing 1933's King Kong and 1954's Godzilla. I've been a fan of both of these characters since I was a kid, and as much as I love the original King Kong, Ishiro Honda's Godzilla is the better film. In the United States, we tend to look down on Godzilla, maybe in large part because of what American distributors did to those early movies between their re-edits and the bad English dubs, But the original film is so deeply and profoundly sad. The best sequences don't even feature Godzilla on screen. I'm thinking about the morning after the monsters rampage through Tokyo as we get those shots of the children being tested for radiation sickness, or the choir singing a prayer for peace on television. Having been released only nine years after the end of World War II, this movie genuinely feels like a kind of uh, national catharsis filtered through popular entertainment. So thank you guys for having this conversation, and thanks for putting out a great podcast. We get back into Godzilla v. Kong with that voicemail from listener Garrett Steiger and talk about perfectly setting the table here as we get to our fourth of five categories. We are talking about message slash metaphorical weight to reset briefly. We have pitted these two monster movie classics against each other, 33's Kong and 54's Godzilla. We've talked about their stories, their characters and performances, the monsters themselves and the effects that brought them to life. But we are getting into the serious stuff now, Josh, and Garrett makes a very impassioned and very strong case for the ultimately very sad Godzilla. Are you in agreement with Garrett? Absolutely. I think, yeah, he he just nailed it. And this is something that even though you know, 
I think it's one of those things, even if you know the basics of Godzilla, have never seen it, you understand that it is this metaphor for the bombings of Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and nuclear warfare in general. That's just kind of, you know, part of the the legend surrounding the film. But I think it's always shocking to watch it and realize what a priority the movie makes of that and how artfully it communicates it. In between mm-hmm. being this rampaging monster movie, you know, it, it it's not just that, oh yeah, he's supposed to represent that and now he destroys a bunch of things. It's also that, think of the very beginning. The, there's an immediate concern for survivors in this film. I, I yeah. mentioned how the plot starts with this boat that is lost and no one knows what happens. Think about the scenes that show the families who come to the shipping office to, to right. demand to know the names of those three men who are initially found alive on a raft. They, they want to know their names and we see the suffering of these families. <laughs> And so that's just kind of a hint of what this movie is concerned with. And then once we do get to the attack itself, there are little throwaway moments of that mother with her children on the street who says, we're going to see daddy. Like she just thinks we're not going to make it. And she's telling her kids this. And even this goes back to the creature design a little bit, but even Godzilla oozes radioactivity. The the footprints are kind of like these instant hot zones, right? That are Mm -hmm. dangerous. The creature looks misshapen. There's a lumpiness, almost like it's an atomic burn victim itself. Uh, I talked about the whale of sorrow. Uh, So I think it, it's not only that this movie is a clear metaphor, but it's a very potent one in the moment while you're watching it. It's extremely potent. And this is a case where, as we talk about Kong in terms of its metaphor, it's truly more metaphor because I think it's subtextual. And here with Godzilla, it's pretty much textual. It's there and being dealt with right from the very beginning of the film. As you said, of course, those final lines, even of the movie, "'Twas beauty that killed the beast. Kong is trying to deal in that sort of artful realm. And the last line of Godzilla hints at, more doom potentially to come if man doesn't figure its act out. It's very anti-war in that way. I, of course, want to get to Godzilla, which I do think is the clear winner of this category. But maybe we can talk about Kong a little bit here, Josh. First, I do think there are many aspects you can mine in Kong. The folly of man trying to control nature, believing he has dominion over the earth, the problems of capitalism. I mean, both are in a line, a single exchange that the Denim character has. He says, we'll give him more than chains. He's always been king of his world, but we'll teach him fear. We'll teach him fear. We're millionaires, boys. I'll share it with all of you, right? I mean, it's, it's all right there in those lines. And I will also mention our friend Nathan Rabin, formerly of the AV Club, He wrote an article, I think, when one of the recent Kong movies came out, Skull Island, I think it was. He wrote an article at Vanity Fair that is titled What Every King Kong Movie Is Really About. And he says of King Kong 1933 that, you know, its racial politics are pretty much in keeping with the racial politics of the time. He says it's pretty racist, but he does also acknowledge 
that the film can be read as an anti-colonialist allegory in which Kong is actually a proud and untamed indigenous warrior, a king and a free soul in his own world who is captured, kidnapped, taken in shackles across the ocean, and forced to put on a show for the amusement of debauched white people. No wonder he rebels so righteously. In this interpretation, Kong is still a beast rather than the increasingly anthropomorphic creature he would become over the decades, but even in his savage original incarnation, he was already more sympathetic and, yes, human than his captors and hunters who complicate the film's colonialist and racist undertones by being so over-the-top in their boorish, ugly American awfulness. They come off not as heroes, but as satirical caricatures of Yankee voraciousness and greed. I think Nathan's right. That element is there. We can get into the gender and sexual politics as well. But I do feel, Josh, ultimately that Kong's achievement, and it is that, an achievement, is that it accomplishes exactly what Denham was setting out to do as a director. He says, listen, I'm going out and making the greatest picture in the world, something that nobody's ever seen or heard of. They'll have to think up a lot of new adjectives when I come back. And we spoke to how inventive and how imaginative and groundbreaking it was in so many technical ways. I don't think Marion Cooper and Ernest Shadesack really care about saying or doing anything more profound than that, which is in stark contrast to Godzilla. Yeah. You, you have to mine Kong for these metaphorical possibilities. And because of that, you have a myriad of them to choose from. You have mm-hmm. some that are admirable, and then you have some that are not, that are questionable. And often they're conflicting each other. So I think Nathan's reading, as far as this anti-colonialist, that's totally there. Kong is this avenger for the colonized, right? At the same time, you totally see that the presentation of the Islanders as these this fearsome tribe of non-white people is very much steeped in racism and Kong yeah. is could be seen as an exaggeration of that is you Kidnapping know it's like the white woman well okay so there's the really <laughs> the really yeah. problematic element is that it's so clear that Kong is obsessed with the golden right she's yes. described at one point yes. the golden Anne. and so you have this underlying fear of interracial relationships that can be can be read into the movie as well and how about you know, going back to Cabot's role as the first mate and his relationship with Anne, how it's very domineering. And, you know, he's the man and he's going to, if he has to put up with her at all, it's going to be because he has to protect her and he's going to maybe, all right, against his will, fall in love with her, I guess. And this sort of abusive relationship really is only inflated by Kong. So here suddenly Kong is like, is the Cabot character times 600. Uh, It's this, you know, very masculine figure who's going to take what he wants in terms of a woman, dominate her, and that is supposed to be read as romantic. Mm -hmm. And so I think what's fascinating about Kong is how these good metaphorical possibilities are often undercut by these uncomfortable ones, which isn't to say that this is a movie that needs to be, you know, canceled in any terms, but it does complicate its overall potency as a work of metaphor, whereas for me, Godzilla is much more clear and coherent in what it wants to do, and I think that gives it the edge, even though both of these are rich as metaphorical exercises. I think that's what gives Godzilla ultimately the edge for me. Yeah. Godzilla, like King Kong, is also to some extent about the folly of man trying to control nature, believing he has dominion over the earth, but 
this is what Garrett was speaking to and what you were touching on as well, Josh. It's also a portrait of a country that is less than a decade removed from the horrors of the atomic bomb. And it's reckoning with, in a movie that is still fun and thrilling in a lot of ways, it's reckoning with that trauma and what it means to survive, what it means to live every day with that fear, reckoning with how life changes when you know that type of death and destruction is possible, that it can happen to you really at any moment without any warning when you fully understand what man is capable of doing to each other. It even struck me, Josh, that the residents of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were were bombed. It came from the sky. And now here's a Japanese movie that's saying, well, it can come from the water, too. Yeah. You know, you're really not safe anywhere. And Garrett alluded to this. The scenes of the fallout from the attack on Tokyo, it feels like footage we've seen from Hiroshima, from Nagasaki. The fire raging in the city looks like newsreel footage. It even struck me that when Sarazawa burns his papers, you know, it's him burning them and the camera lingers on the fire, on that going up in flames, matching the flames of the city in ruins. There's a lot of shots that linger on the city in Godzilla's wake, and a couple of them really are breathtaking or other moments that follow it, like Garrett said, the prayer, that song that the girls sing. That moment you said, Josh, where the mother and the daughters are basically waiting for their death and saying they're going to be where daddy is soon. It hits very hard. And there's even another moment that struck me as kind of one of those throwaway moments, but in a movie that doesn't have any throwaway moments. It's early on. It's before the Tokyo attack. And we see some, I think, students maybe riding on a train. They're going to school or they're going to work for the day and they're kind of talking about what this means for their lives and one of them says oh evacuate again yeah. i'm not i'm not doing it this time and it just makes you think about you know you can't compare them too much because king kong was made in 1933 in the united states it's in the midst of a depression you can make the easy argument that it's a film that is treading in this kind of fantasy and adventure and pure escapism for a reason. But we're also not that far removed from World War I at that point. But there's something different about a movie that's being made less than a decade after the atomic bomb is dropped on a country that felt on its homeland the horrors of war. It is, to use your word, a much more mournful movie, a much more serious movie. And the fact that these people have to talk about evacuating again is one thing, but it also says something I feel about human nature that you can see that impending doom, even like when COVID first hit here, we all heard about it. We knew it was serious. We knew people were dying. And yet there were a lot of people who said, well, I can still be a little careless or I can still take risks. And this guy is saying, you know what? Even though I remember what it was like, I saw what the horror of war was like and what those bombs did to my countrymen. Well, you know what? I really just want to go on with my life and I don't want to deal with the hassle of evacuating. You know, that's why a scene like that is in this movie to make you think about those kinds of questions and dilemmas. And I mentioned earlier that Godzilla is this kind of embodiment of man's destructiveness. Well, it's also, in a way, an embodiment of Japan itself, 
the professor, Shimura's character, kind of hints at this. He talks about how we should be studying him, not just for its scientific value, but kind of to understand his resourcefulness. It's as if he's saying, you know, we're all like Godzilla. We've all survived this attack. We are all children. We are all men and women of the atomic age. And wouldn't it be good if we knew how to survive in this type of age? And that's why he wants to study Godzilla. So Godzilla just has an agenda that is a lot more provocative and more resonant with me than obviously King Kong does. Yeah. So it sounds like we agree on this one, at least giving this one to Godzilla. And what were you were just talking about kind of leads into the miscellaneous question that I wanted to ask. Which one of these monsters is more sympathetic, ultimately, taking into account everything we've we've talked about in terms of story and um, the representation through effects of the creatures, but these metaphors at work, too, is there because I kind of shifted on this maybe a little bit in this viewing. I think I used to think of Kong as this tragic and misunderstood creature that I could identify with more because there was more personality there as we've been talking about, mm -hmm. you know, but now I think just giving more weight to the elements of racism and sexism that are there makes me kind of feel like, okay, maybe Kong isn't quite the tragic hero the movie wants him to be. Mm -hmm. And Godzilla, again, every time I watch it feels like a more potent image of this victim who's, you know, at the very least, he's been rudely woken up from a nap. But at the worst, he is this this malformed creature from nuclear testing who's seeking some yeah. sort of revenge. And and so I've, I've kind of shifted on this question a little bit more towards Godzilla, I think. Yeah. I mean, I certainly, as I said earlier, have some empathy for Kong would have been just fine living out its life on Skull Island. Right. If no one bothered it, if no one brought King Kong to New York, where it wreaks all that havoc, but you understand why, of course it's going to, right? It is not in its natural environment and it's being exploited. Not that Kong really understands it in those terms, but there's still something that is so much more tragic about Godzilla to the point where, as I said earlier, Josh, when we get to the end and we know what is about to happen, and we know what has to happen to Godzilla. I feel like something terrible is about to occur. I, I want so desperately as a viewer to be able to somehow intercede and find some other solution that doesn't involve killing this creature. And I don't think that there's enough depth, really, to King Kong to provoke those same kind of feelings. Well, the other thing with Kong is you do have to ask yourself, you know, yes, he could have just been left well enough alone on the island, but we never really learn what happens to, I have to assume there are previous brides who are delivered oh, yeah. to Kong by the island. Oh, I islanders. think we know, Josh. So, so that, you know, that puts a different light on Kong's character too. <laughs> yeah, but if, that's, if he's but... been chomping on brides for, for you know, a well, hundred years. Yes, but... I think that's more something we can damn the movie for, which goes back to your other point about how, you know, Kong probably chomps on the native women without thinking. But as mm. soon as Kong sees Anne Darrow, the white woman, it, yes. of course, stops. But I don't know that you can really blame Kong for being Kong <laughs> and eating anything otherwise that's given to him. I mean, he could have stuck to dinosaurs. 
<laughs> Maybe so, Josh. Maybe so. I definitely do feel that Godzilla is more sympathetic. So we are through our categories. I have a pretty decisive win here for Godzilla four to one. Now, I do think it probably says something about your own personality and what you even go to the cinema for, which movie you side with here, because I don't begrudge anyone who enjoys the adventure and fantasy and the excitement of King Kong. But I watched this with my daughter, Sophie, about to be 17. I watched it with my son, Quinn, who's about to be 14, and also my son, Connor, who's about to be 11. Now, Connor, I think, was more falling in line with his siblings, but man, right away before I even said anything, both Sophie and Quinn just exclaimed how much better Godzilla was than King Kong. So my kids even felt like there was something so much weightier and just compelling about the the more serious movie. So maybe we're just a bunch of pseudo-intellectuals here in my house. Well, I've got to ask you, is this, when this idea first came up, I thought you hinted that you don't know if there's much of an argument here because the case is pretty clear that people think of Kong as a classic and Godzilla as sort of a B movie. So has your thinking shifted after watching the two or was that not near, not really indicative of, of the quality? You were just kind of describing their reputations. Do you mean earlier in this discussion or on a previous no, no, show? Like when we, yeah, when we I first it threw it like out there, emailing about it or something like yeah. that. Yeah, no, that was definitely my sense that Kong was this revered, classic and that Godzilla absolutely was more of a B picture. And it's funny. I even said too, of course, this is how bad my memory is. I said on that same show, I think that I had never seen Godzilla 1954. Of course, then I went to Letterboxd and realized that, yeah, I saw it back in 2014, really liked it then as well. But I think what you're getting at is maybe there are more people out there that have seen Kong. Maybe they haven't seen Godzilla or they grew up seeing some of the not quite as good iterations of it over the years and assuming that Godzilla movies are kind of cheesy. Well, there is nothing cheesy about Godzilla 1954. Right. And and this is where you really have to point people to the 54 Japanese version and not the Raymond Burr one. I mean, you get a hint of what is going on in that American version, but it does not have the power at all. So I would say for myself, um, going into this, again, both movies I've long loved and have watched many times. There was a wider gap between them, but for me, it is still Kong who comes out on top. I think I gave it three out of the five categories. And and that might, you know, it's so, here's how close it is. The performances category is where I don't quite know where to go. And if I mm-hmm. shifted that to Godzilla, it could be Godzilla. I think for me, and I wish I could find who said this on uh, a Twitter somewhat, is that Godzilla is working in the tradition of Kong in a lot of ways as well. And so I do just have this bottom line appreciation of Kong as a foundational cinematic myth that when you go back to it, it's one of these that you can see the influences and you can also see that it isn't just one of these that had some neat ideas it didn't quite accomplish. And that's why it was influential. Mm -hmm. It's influential because it pulled it off. And and so I'm going to give Kong still the slight edge, perhaps fitting Adam. At the end of all this, we we end up on on different sides. (laughs) Fair enough. 1933's King Kong is available to rent on most platforms. It is also currently available to subscribers of HBO Max, or you can look for it at your local library. You can also check your library for 1954's Godzilla, and that too is available to stream on HBO Max, and it's currently free to Criterion Channel subscribers. 
And Josh, that means the battle is over. But if others want to still fight it, they can do it on Facebook and Twitter. We're there. Adam is at FilmSpotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Over in the show archives at FilmSpotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. And you can vote in the championship round of Film Spotting Madness, best of the 80s. It is Do the Right Thing versus The Shining. To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop, and you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out in limited release in theaters and on HBO Max, you can see Godzilla v. Kong. If our discussion here exhilarated you and inspired you to want to check out that new film, or maybe it made you realize how good these two originals were and you didn't really want to mess with what the new one had to offer we'd understand that next week here on the show we will get to the next film in our seven from 76 series i can hear the music now rocky is up (laughs) next josh and detour from 1945 the next film in our 40s noir marathon Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.